As we get started this morning, I'd like to ask you to do two things with regard to your Bible. Number one, I want you to turn your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, and somehow mark that location. If you have a Bible ribbon marker, you can place that in 1 Peter chapter 3, or if not, maybe you can take a pen or a pencil and put it there. In just a moment, we're going to be coming back to 1 Peter chapter 3. Then having marked that location, turn your Bible to John chapter 3. The Gospel of John chapter 3. So mark your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 3, and open your Bible to John chapter 3. As you're turning your Bible, let me very quickly say how thankful I am to be here today. I always love being at White Oak. I wasn't here too long ago where we talked about uh, an ethical issue in your uh, Wednesday night series, and so I expressed then how, uh, how much of an honor it is to come back. I grew up here, and uh, it's, it's always feels like home coming back, and so we appreciate very much uh, being able to come back and be at White Oak, either to hear lessons or to speak, and uh, just to be around you. It's always great. It's always get to, to get to be around JC is always a great thing. Uh, you would never know, looking at J.C., that he's 80 years old. He looks youthful, and we're glad uh, for that. We're glad he's feeling better lately, and uh, we're just always glad to get to be around J.C. It's good to be around Jim and uh, other of you who are here. Uh, some of you have known me longer than I've known you. You remember me better than I know you from the standpoint of uh, you were older and I was younger. And so I've, But I've grown to love uh, everybody here very much, and I appreciate uh, anytime I get to come back. And I also appreciate the chance to work with Good News Today. I'm very excited about the program, and I'm very excited about the segments that are being produced, which we're now a part. And as Jim introduced, my segment is entitled, Be Ready Always. And a lot of that is due to Jim and the effort that he's put into the program. But I wanted to at least illustrate the way that we're going about the program and what it's designed to do as a way of introducing what we're going to be talking about in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. The title of our series is, Be Ready Always. And what we're hoping to do is not just merely for Christians, but for those who are not Christians as well, to take some idea that they may have heard in the world that doesn't exactly harmonize with what's being taught in the Bible, and then to take that Bible verse that's under consideration, or maybe a Bible verse that corresponds to that thought, and then use that verse or a few verses right there in the context and then just show how we can point a person back to the truth. And I want to illustrate this morning, for example, what we might do in a typical program on Be Ready Always and to show you why it's so important in the lesson that we're going to talk about this morning in 1 Peter 3. For example, look at John chapter 3. And notice in verse 16, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And it may be in this world that you've run into somebody in your own studies who will say something like this. You know, all a person has to know is what's in John 3.16. The only verse in the Bible that anybody really needs to possess is John 3.16. If that were the only verse that a person had, then all you'd need to know to do about salvation is right here. And so sometimes a, a child of God, somebody who's really seeking to provide a Bible answer says, I wish I had a real answer for that. I know that's not right, but I wish I knew 
uh, a very good way of approaching this text that would show somebody there's more to salvation than what you can find in John 3.16. So a typical program might go something like this. We're going to read the verse, and then I'm going to offer in that five-minute segment, five, six-minute segment, about three points just from John 3, verse 16, or maybe some of the verses around it that will help the person listening, viewing the program, answer that challenge. For example, in this verse, we will make the point, first of all, notice a number of things that are not listed in this verse. There's nothing said about repentance in this verse. And yet, many people in the world would say that while belief is necessary for salvation, so is repentance. And yet, repentance is not listed. Confession is not listed in this verse. Neither is the grace of God. Neither is there anything about our love toward God. Only it mentions here the love of God toward man. So, if you look at this passage, there are a number of things that are actually not stated that are very important to the salvational issue. And so we would say, clearly this verse is not a once-for-all verse dealing with salvation, although it's important, although it outlines the love of God toward man and the extent of His love toward man and giving His Son for us. There's a lot more that's important to salvation that we don't find in this passage. And then we might say, in your Bible, circle the word for in verse 16. We want people to understand that verse 16 is actually part of a greater discussion. It's still part of the discussion that Jesus is having with a man by the name of Nicodemus. And then if you read beginning in John 3 and verse 1, twice in this passage before he ever gets to verse 16, he has told Nicodemus that he must be born of water and of the Spirit. So yes, belief is important. We would never undermine or somehow diminish the importance of belief, but it's just as important that a person be baptized because in the same context, with the same man under consideration, Jesus told him twice before that he has to be born of water. So in this passage we would say, if you'll circle that word for, then you grab some context and it may, may help you illustrate to the person who's questioning this passage exactly how to go about answering this. And then we might say, well, number three, underneath the verse 16 somewhere, write John 1 verse 12. And what we're doing is providing a reference inside the book of John where a person would go back to John chapter 1 and he would read verse 12 which says, But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And we would make the point that in this passage, in the book of John, in the same book in which we find that verse in question, which we've now made a footnote in John 3.16, the Bible tells us that when we believe, we have the potential, we have the power to become the sons of God, but are not sons of God at the moment of belief. And so by doing that, in just a few simple ways, we can take a Bible verse, and say, well, you may have heard someone say this about the verse, but here's three easy points to show you how to be ready now to give an answer in regard to that. And that's basically the thrust of the program. We're just taking a verse here or there, something you may have heard about the verse that really doesn't harmonize with what that verse teaches, and then showing the truth of the matter just from the passage itself in a few easy points. Now, we do that because we have that exact charge, maybe not necessarily the exact manner in which we're approaching it for the sake of time, but we have that charge in the Bible in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. So turn your Bible to 1 Peter 3, verse 15. And this morning I want to analyze with you what it means to be ready always. Listen to this passage. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts... And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. 
There are three things in this passage this morning that I want to show to you that will show you, me, how to be ready always. Number one, we're going to say that in order to be ready always, we must have the right actions. There are two of them listed here. And when we get these actions right, it makes the rest of the task so much easier. Number two, we're going to say that in addition to right actions, there is a right answer. There is something that we must be telling the world, and it's based on something. We'll see that in just a moment. And then number three, there must be the right attitude. Not only must we have the right answer, not only must the preparatory actions be in place, but there's an attitude that is able to convey that answer in a very palatable fashion. So we're going to be looking at these three areas. So let's begin number one by talking about the right actions. And there are two of them listed here. Notice in verse 15, he says, but sanctify, that's one of those verbs. And then finally, he will say, and be ready. And so this idea of sanctifying and being ready are showing us two areas, two actions, in which we must be prepared to give the answer with the right attitude. So let's talk about this idea of sanctifying. Now, I'm going to explain further what I mean by this in just a moment. But we're going to break these two actions up. We're going to call it, first of all, a lifestyle Preparation. When he says sanctify the Lord God in your heart, I'm going to show you by context that what he has in mind is a manner of life where people are able to examine our lifestyle and see that we really do believe the answers that we're giving because we're living out the answers and they're going to compare that by what we're saying. And so those two areas we're going to look at. So let's look at this lifestyle application. Now I want you to listen to verse 15 again. And notice in your Bible, if you like to underline or draw in your Bible, circle maybe, underline or circle the word but at the beginning of the passage. Did you notice that? I know that we read this passage and we always talk about being ready to give an answer and we talk about the hope that is in us and we talk about meekness and fear. But did you notice that the first word in verse 15 is a contrast? But. So what does that mean exactly? Well, in order to know exactly what it means, you've got to go back to the verse right before that or maybe even several verses prior to that. And so listen to verse 14. Peter says, And if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Now notice in verse 14 that Peter warns them about the constant conflict that exists between Christianity and the world and that suffering and Christianity are inevitable. They are companions. They always go together because the world loves darkness and the world does not like light. And so if you're living in the light, there's going to be a struggle. You're going to be caught in the middle of that conflict between the two. Now back in verse 13, he has told them that as long as we do what is right, as long as we live faithfully, it, there's nobody that can really bring harm to the child of God. Notice he says, who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But Peter extends that warning in verse 14 and says, while we certainly understand, we believe that we will never truly be harmed by the world, at least in any real impactful way, it doesn't alleviate fear. See, notice in verse 14, he says, Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. He is saying, don't let fear seize you up. Don't let it hold you back from doing what is right. Don't let fear become the master of your life. And you put that in the context of suffering, which is the general context of 1 Peter, and it makes for a very vivid application going into verse 15. Think about it. I know that in classes, I know in sermons, I know that you've heard people say, talk about some of the grotesque 
practices of persecution that existed in the first century. Put yourself there. Imagine what it would be like for somebody to take you and put you on the stand, on trial, and tell you that you can either deny Jesus Christ or be torn apart by wild beasts. What would you think? Would fear become a superseding thought? Would it become the master of your mind? Would it cause you to somehow basically incapacitate you from doing what is right? Imagine that someone says, here's your option. Today you can either deny that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You have that option or we're going to take you and dip you in some sort of combustible material. We're going to tie you to a stake and then we're going to light you on fire while you're still alive so that we can light the entrance into the city. That's your choice. Would fear become some sort of a superseding motive in your mind? See, Peter is saying just because you may be faithful doesn't mean that fear won't set into the mind. In fact, hold your place and go back to Hebrews chapter 11. At the end of Hebrews 11, there are some practices of persecution that are listed that some of the saints of God in the past really did face. And listen to chapter 11 of Hebrews. And I've always been astounded by verse 37. Enlisting some of these, you know, he talks about the cruel mockings, verse 36, the scourgings, verse 36, bonds, imprisonment, verse 36, and then he says they were so, uh, stoned, and then listen to this one, they were sawn asunder. Well, that means exactly what it says. In history, literally in history, there were some children of God who were placed on tables and sawn asunder for their faith. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it. You'd have to watch, I'm sure, an edited version of it on television. But years ago, Mel Gibson was in a movie called Braveheart. And the, the story was of, uh, of a Scottish revolutionary named William Wallace. And at the end of that movie, uh, his character is placed on a torture table. They're seeking a confession from him of repentance where he would basically say, you know, the government has the right to suppress and oppress the people. And he was fighting for freedom. And they literally, in the movie, of course, it was to be exaggerated, but he is disemboweled while he is still alive. And that imagery sets in my mind every time I think about Hebrews 11, verse 37, where it talks about them being sawn asunder. Some of our brothers and sisters, children of God, in history were placed on tables and saws were used to cut their bodies in half while they were still alive. Now, given the fact that that happened historically, can you imagine the kind of fear that might overwhelm the mind of a person who's trying to serve God faithfully? Well, now take that back and notice in verse 15, he says in verse 14, do not let fear control your life, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready to give an answer always to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Instead of letting fear control the life, instead of letting fear be the master of your heart, let Jesus be the master of your heart. Now watch what that does in this context. Again, we're saying this is a lifestyle preparation. It's a choice of who is going to be the master of our heart. Either we let fear be the master of our heart, or we let the Lord be the master of our heart, and then we, of course, deal with fear through the mastery of Jesus Christ. But notice in this passage when he talks about sanctifying, which word, of course, you know means consecrate, to set apart, uh, to put in a place of holiness. Uh, the idea then would be that we put Jesus in charge of the heart. We're letting him be the master of the heart. In this context, he's dealing with the lifestyle of the child of God. In fact, go back and look at verse 11. Let him eschew evil. Let him do good. That's the lifestyle. 
Let him seek peace and ensue it. That's lifestyle. For the eyes of the Lord are over, notice the righteous. That's talking about the life of the person under consideration. Drop down and notice in verse 16. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation. That is your good manner of life in Christ. Notice that over and over and over again in this book, at least in this chapter especially, Peter's drawing attention to the lifestyle of the child of God. You say, well, wait a minute now. In verse 15, he said, sanctify the Lord God in your heart. It's interesting. Sanctify here is an aorist tense. It carries the idea of once and for all. Let me ask you this question. What happens to the life of a person who once and for all enthrones Jesus over his heart? Doesn't it change? Isn't the lifestyle radically different than what else you see in the world? And Peter is making the point that before we're ever able to verbalize an answer, there has to be a lifestyle that is consistent with the answer. And really in the context, it is the lifestyle that is so radically different than the world that becomes the point of controversy to the world. But he's making the point that you've got to live right before you can offer the right answer. Listen, I know you've heard things like this before, and I'm not saying anything you haven't heard already, but actions do speak louder than words. All the words that you could ever speak to somebody will never compare in effect to the life that you live before them. Your life, your changed life, is a confirmation of the power of the gospel to change lives. Think about Paul. On one occasion, Paul describes himself in 1 Timothy 1 as a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, and he puts that in the past tense. Paul said, I used to be that, but not now. You can examine my lifestyle and know that the gospel has the power to change lives. But we don't have to go any further than context. Look at chapter 3, verse Peter. Look at verse 1. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word. Stop there. Notice in this passage that you have a woman who's married to a non-Christian man. She's trying to convert him. And he says, Peter does, that if he does not obey the word. Now here the idea is that he has become antagonistic toward the truth. She's tried to present the Bible to him and he doesn't want to hear it any longer. And so now she's left with a choice. What does she do to try to convert her husband? Notice the Bible says, they also may without literally a word be won by the conversation, the manner of life of the wives. Peter, what are you saying? Well, she's trying to present the truth and he's not listened to her. In fact, he's now shut off his ears to the hearing of the truth, but he can still be converted by the way that you live. See, notice in verse 2, he'll say, while they behold your chaste, literally, manner of life coupled with fear. Yes, there's something about giving people the right answer, but there's also something about people seeing that answer at work already in our own life. There was a, a true story told about a man who was a drunk. He was a pretty nasty drunk. He was a, a person who when he drank, he became very violent toward his wife. She was a Christian. He was not. And uh, she was very faithful. She never missed a service. She was there at church every Sunday. Uh, both services, she was there on Wednesday night. Even extra activities hosted by the local congregation, she was there. And it came time for the week of the gospel meeting. And he came in from work and she was home and she was getting ready. And he became very agitated that she was about to leave for the night. And by the time she got home, he was already there. He was pretty sauced up already. And so he became very verbally abusive toward her. He was mocking her and chiding her because she wanted to go to the gospel meeting. At least she had expressed that intent. And it made him angry. 
She was getting ready to go to the gospel meeting and he continued drinking and he became incensed in his mind to the point that while she was getting ready, he went to the nightstand beside his side of the bed and he grabbed the pistol, the small revolver that he kept there. And when she was on her way out of the door to go to the gospel meeting, he grabbed her with one hand by the throat, pinned her to the wall, stuck the gun in her temple, that is in her forehead, and he says, now, what are you going to do? What's your plan now? What are you going to do now? And she said, if you pull the trigger, I'll go to heaven. If you don't, I'm going to the gospel meeting. Would you know that same week, that man was converted. He attended the gospel meeting the very next night, I think several days later, by the study of the scriptures with somebody, he was converted by the profound influence of the lifestyle of his wife. So when we say, okay, we need to be ready to give people an answer, it's not just some sort of rote information that we're providing to people. What we're saying is we believe these answers. Here's the proof. Look at the way we live. We're living these answers. These answers are already at work in our life. So Peter says, be ready always. How do you do that? Well, you've got to live right. Now, it's not just lifestyle. Because notice in verse 15 he says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. A changed heart leads to a changed life. That's lifestyle preparation. And notice the next word, and. That's a connection. It takes those two elements and makes them of equal grammatical force. So there's another action that's required. He says, and be ready always. We're going to call this language or linguistic preparation. In other words, it's not enough just to live right. At some point, we have to tell people what is right. Now, you know very well the meaning of that phrase, ready. It means to be prepared. Carries the idea of being able to seize opportunities. We are able to bear up under whatever circumstance there is, and we are able to conquer that circumstance because we are prepared for it. And in this passage, he's talking about the ability to give an answer. And so he's talking about speech in addition to lifestyle. Again, it is not enough just to be able to live right in front of people. We have to be able to explain to them why we're living this way. We've got to give them the right answer. In other words, we have to be prepared to give the answer. Now, if there were a clearer declaration in the Bible for the necessity of study, I don't know where it would be. Because when it says be ready, it is requiring us to study the scriptures to be able to have answers for those who ask. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 119, there's a, a great statement in verse 41 and 42. And I want you to listen to this. Psalm 119, listen to verse 41 and 42 of this passage. The psalmist says this. He says in verse 41... Let thy mercies come also unto me, O Lord, even thy salvation according to thy word. So shall I have wherewith to answer him that reproacheth me, for I trust in thy word. And let me ask you this. Have you ever been asked a Bible question? Or been involved in a Bible study where someone presents a Bible question? And you know that you ought to have the answer. And you don't have it. And you get that clammy feeling, that nauseating feeling in the pit of your stomach because you know that you should have the answer to that Bible question. It could be something simple. And listen, it doesn't mean that we're going to know everything. Obviously, we can still come back and study and take answers to people. But this is a question you know that you ought to have the answer to. And there's that nauseating feeling in the pit of your stomach because you know that you should know. You just don't know it because you were not 
prepared. I've been in that situation before. I'm sure you have too. And so it prompts us to study the Bible. Well, let me show you something. In the book of 1 Peter, there are two striking word pictures about the need to study the Scriptures. And so hold your place in chapter 3 and go back to chapter 1. And let me show you the first of these word pictures. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1. Here Peter says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Notice this idea of girding up the loins of your mind. This is a word picture drawn from the long flowing robes, those outer garments that they wore in the first century. They would wear whatever clothing they would wear underneath and they would have those long outer garments to protect them from the forces and such. And so they would have these long flowing garments. The problem was that if they were not bound up, if they were not seized up, it would prevent mobility. If they tried to run, they would usually fall. And so the idea was if you're going to have any type of activity, if you're going to do something effectively, you've got to be able to sure up all these impediments. And notice that he draws from that word picture and says, whatever hinders your mind, you must take away. And in the context, he's dealing with any kind of temptation. Uh, it would certainly be any kind of external uh, distraction, anything that would hinder us from the unique thought process that is to be characteristic of Christians. And then notice in chapter 2, he gives us the second word picture in verse 2 when he says, As newborn babes, the desire of the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Uh, preachers probably have a very unique vantage point that others do not have, but preachers can always tell new parents. Uh, maybe you can hear it sometime during a service you hear where somebody's head has hit the pew in front of them. Or you see a, a new parent and they'll go like this during service because they're so tired. The baby is wearing them out. And why is that? It's up all night long because it's hungry. It wants to be fed. Its hunger is urgent. There's, a, an, there's a, an instinctiveness that is unique to a baby where it knows that his mother's milk is the very thing that provides the life source and the, the hunger of that child. Even in the wee hours of the midnight, that hunger is frequent and urgent. Because the child knows that's its source of life. And Peter says Christians are to be like newborn babes in that they crave, they hunger the Word of God. The sincere Word of God, just like a baby craves its mother's milk. And so he gives us that illustration. But I want you to notice in both word pictures, there is the, the principle presented that we take away whatever would impede us from learning more about the Word of God. That we gird up those things and that we put ourselves into the Word of God so that we can be ready to give an answer. There is no way that we can ever be prepared to give answers to the world if we do not spend time studying the Bible. You just can't do it. I don't exactly know what it is. I'm sure this is every eldership's dilemma. It's every preacher's concern. As a faithful child of God, maybe you're concerned why other people don't do it. I don't know what it is exactly that prevents people from studying the Bible. I'm just not quite sure. Maybe it's apathy. Maybe sometimes people don't appreciate what they exactly have. Did you know there was a time when men and angels both desired to know the full end of the story that you now have and nice leather-bound editions of the Bible? They wanted that. Now we're here. There was a time when even after it was completed in its written form, men were actually physically kept away from the Bibles during the tyranny of Roman Catholicism. Bibles would literally be chained to pulpits and men who read it without permission would be put to death. And yet here we are on this side of completed revelation and nobody's keeping us from the Bible and we even have the benefit of great study helps like lexicons and encyclopedias and dictionaries and people still don't study the Bible. They're still unprepared. I don't know why it is, except maybe we just don't appreciate what it, 
what it is that we have. Maybe some of it has to do with, maybe we don't appreciate the author of the Bible enough, and maybe some of it is addictions. Maybe some of it goes back to the, the fact that we're so addicted to other things that grab our attention that we just don't have any time to study the Bible. Uh, I get tickled. Uh, we were, um, I think it was my wife and I and my sister-in-law, Beverly, I think we were coming around Northgate and there was a, there was a young guy, he was on a cell phone, and he was, he was not even watching where he was going. But that's, that's pretty common for folks today. They just run into stuff. And there was a stop sign, and it was about 10 yards away, and he was doing something on his phone, and we kept saying in the car, he's going to hit it, he's going to hit it, and boom, just ran right into the stop sign. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we treated our Bible like we treated our cell phones? We get up in the morning. You know what the first thing people do now in the morning is? Before they do anything, before they brush their teeth, before they take a shower, turn on their phone, check their email. Five minutes later, we check our email, make sure someone hasn't emailed us in the five minutes we last checked it. We do it every five minutes of the day. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we treated the Bible that way? That we were just looking at the Bible for answers and we wanted to prepare ourselves and, and we could put down some of those distracting measures and just spend time with God's Word. And the only way that we will ever be prepared to be ready always is if we live right and if we're studying the Bible, if we're linguistically prepared to give an answer. Now, let me offer you a second point. Notice in this passage, in verse 15, that you also have an answer that must be given. There's actually a right answer that must be supplied. Notice he says, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. Have you ever heard the word or maybe used it, apologetics? Some of you probably used that word before. Did you know when you say that word, you're actually just saying the word that's used here? When the Bible says in verse 15 that you give an answer, I think the New King James even has the word defense here, the word is a translation of apologia. It's the word from which we get apologetics. It means a reasoned statement. It carries the idea of a verbal defense. We are offering some type of an answer, a reasoned argument. We are offering some type of a defense of the truth of God. Now, I don't want you to lose the practical import of this statement. I want you to see this in the text. Notice this. Notice that we give an answer to every man and ask a reason. By the way, the word reason there, logos, in this passage is the word that means doctrine, the matter under consideration. It, the idea is that we're giving reasonable answers about Bible doctrines, but notice that we do this to every man that asketh us a reason of the hope that is in us. The word ask here, that verb is in the present tense, and I want you to catch this now. This asking is continual. People are always asking for these Bible answers. And notice that for as long as these questions are being asked, we're providing answers. And notice that for as long as they ask, we're providing the same answers to those Bible questions. It means that the answers that we are providing are objective and real and discernible and concrete. What he's saying is that there is an objective body of truth that we are able to depend upon and rely upon and that we convey to the world as long as this world stands. Now that's not the common thinking of this world. Our world is very relativistic. I know Jim talks about this a lot on Good News Today. How that people in this world just believe that whatever you believe is okay and every man is his own standard. There have been a number of surveys over the year that have suggested that as much as 80% of the world's population had this idea that there's no truth except the one that I define for myself. 
And notice that Peter is now writing and says that's not true because there is a real answer, an objective answer that we provide to every single Bible question and is the answer that stands for all time. If somebody were to say, did Jesus die on the cross? We provide an answer, yes, he did. And that answer is the same 20 years from now or 100 years from now. We are still providing objective answers to that. Now, in a practical sense, here's what it means. It means it makes a difference what you believe. When we get on the program and we say, here's what you may have heard in the world, here's what the Bible actually says about it, we're not saying that out of all the opinions in the world, our opinion's the best opinion. We're saying there's a right answer, and here's the right answer. We're saying it matters what you believe. We really believe that there's great harm in believing the wrong thing. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12, not that we would ever say it to be unkind, but the Bible says that when we believe lies, they condemn us. We do not want people to be condemned. We want them to be saved. And so when we say, here's a way to be ready to provide a Bible answer, we're saying it matters what people believe. You can make a difference in a person's soul just by providing the right answer. But notice in verse 15 that this answer, while it is an explanation, it is based on an expectation. Listen to what he says. He says that we provide this to everyone that asks a reason of the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. Notice this idea of hope. These doctrines that we believe are the foundation of our hope for the future. I want you to notice there's a direct correlation between what we believe and our future hope. You know what that means? It means that not only does it make a difference what you believe, it makes a difference when you believe it. We're saying that when we believe these answers, here are the answers provided by the Bible. These are the answers that make a difference in where people live eternally. I don't know that we could ever emphasize this enough, and maybe it's the one that we ought to be emphasizing more because I'm not quite sure that many members of the body of Christ are convinced of this. And listen, we don't say it because we're trying to be mean or unkind, but here's the reality of the situation. If people do not know God, if they do not believe the truth, if they are erring children of God, they are lost. We will never be prepared to give someone the answer that they deserve, that they need to hear if we do not believe that they are lost. Why would we do it otherwise? If answers to Bible questions really didn't make a difference in where people live eternally, why have a program like Be Ready Always? What would it matter? We would be an inconvenience to them. Let people believe what they want. The, the, we cannot do that. The issue is it simply cannot be left alone because if people are imbibing the doctrines of demons and they are listening to the devil's doctrine instead of the doctrine of God, it makes a difference because what they believe is going to bear on where they live eternally. When we say that people ought to be ready always to give an answer, we're saying it, it makes a difference because it bears on eternity. And so Peter says this is the answer of the reason of the hope that is in you. Now let me very quickly offer something about the attitude here. It doesn't mean that we just offer an answer in any old-fashioned way or any way that we see fit. Notice in verse 15 he says that we do so with regard to this attitude with meekness and fear. Two attitudes here. One is meekness. Uh, maybe you have a marginal note in your Bible that says gentleness of spirit. The idea is that even though we are providing the correct answer from the Bible, it doesn't give us a license to be belligerent. It doesn't give us the right to be rude to people. It doesn't give us the right to resort to name-calling. Oh, we can be forceful. The Lord was. He, was. he was forceful in His application of the truth. Here's the truth. It must be believed. Conform your life to it. 
But we do so in a way that is humble. And I think, and this is just my judgment, in the context of the statement, I've contemplated meekness and how it might be defined in the context, and here's what I think it means. In this passage, when he talks about a gentleness of spirit, the, the lack of pride, the lack of um, self-exaltation, I believe that it is partly based on the fact that the ability to change the lives of other people is not in me. It's in the answer that God gives. Paul wrote once in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 1 that he did not write with excellency of speech. Paul was saying that I'm writing to change your life, but the power to change your life is not in me. So as smooth as my answer may be, as intellectual as my word choice may be, I must realize that I am not changing anybody. The power to change is not in David Smith. It's in the gospel. That's why we present the answer. I do it with meekness. Why? Because God does the changing. All I do is present the Bible answer to man and say, here's what the Bible says about that. Take it. Please accept it. And then I do so in verse 15 with fear. The, certainly the word that's used here can mean dread or terror. And I think it's interesting. In verse 14, he said, don't be fearful, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And really, you, all, you might be able to make something of a comparison to an earlier statement in the Bible. Fear not those who are able to kill the body, and, uh, the body but fear him that is able to kill, kill both body and soul in hell. And there seems to be a parallel, at least in thought, in verse 14 and 15. But the word here carries more perhaps the sense of reverence, adoration. Why is it that we would prepare ourselves to give everybody the right answer? Because we respect God. And we love Him enough that we respect what He said. And so in this passage, what we have seen is the right action. There are things that we do to prepare ourselves. Living right. And then making sure that we actually have in our speech the right answers because the, the lifestyle is a confirmation of the fact that we believe these answers. You can see those answers at work in our life, but we also want to tell you what is right. And then number two, there is the, uh, in this uh, passage the answer. We actually want to say the right thing. There are objective answers to Bible questions. We're able to go to the Scripture and by using proper Bible interpretation techniques, we can find the one answer that God wants us to know. And it's the answer that's going to stand for all time. And in this passage, we also have the right attitude that we do so with meekness and with fear. And when we do that, when we have the right actions, the right answers, the right attitude, then we're ready. We're able to do what this program is about on Good News Today. And more than that, we're able to do what Christians ought to do, and that's be ready always. So that's the basis of this program. That's what we're going to be trying to do for the world, but especially here in our own community through uh, this program on Good News Today. So that's why we're doing what we're doing. It's the basis of what we're doing. We're trying to model our program ourselves after what we can read right here. And so we'll uh, let that be the end of our study. Uh,